If you will, turn in the scriptures with me to Psalm 62. Here in the middle of winter, we're studying songs of salvation, a few psalms that focus on God's deliverance, that praise God for his great rescue. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chris Hinckley from Olmstead Falls preached Psalm 27, which began, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Last week, I focused on Psalm 40, which famously likens God's salvation to God picking us up out of a miry bog and setting our feet on the rock. Today, we'll explore Psalm 62, which begins, From God comes my, my salvation. Repeats twice, God alone is my rock and my salvation. Lord willing, next week, Pastor Greg will preach Psalm 71, in which an elderly saint reflects on God's salvation. Psalm 71:15, my mouth will tell of your salvation all the day. And this mature elderly believer keeps begging God for the privilege of telling God's salvation, what God has done in saving them to the next generation. These are, these are songs of salvation. As I said today, we're focused on Psalm 62. It's just 12 verses. It's composed by David about a thousand years before Jesus. David was king in Israel who first united all 12 tribes under the rule of the king in the capital city of Jerusalem. And it was, of course, to David that God had made the promise that one of his descendants would reign on earth forever. Let's read together Psalm 62, this God-breathed poem by Israel's great composer, royal composer David. To the choir master, according to Jedithon, a psalm of David. Jedithon is actually the name of one of the Levitical musicians that David had appointed to lead music that took place in the tabernacle. And it's possible that according to Jedithon, is a tune or maybe a style or a rhythm that this musical composer uh, wrote. And David is saying, this song goes to the famous tune that Jedithon composed. David writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. The term Selah is an interesting term. It means to lift up. And it's not entirely clear what kind of musical instruction this is. Maybe it's lift up your voices, maybe uh, change the, uh, the pace, or many people consider that it might be a musical interlude. Let's let the instruments come in and allow everyone an opportunity to lift up their hearts to God as we who've been singing now take time to reflect as the musical interlude plays. Not quite sure, but that is very likely. David continues. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. 
I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So trust in him at all times or in all circumstances. Oh, people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, the word but is actually first in the sentence, and we might say, only a breath are those of low estate, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They're together lighter than a breath. So put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hope on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. It's really interesting there at the end of verse 12. To you belongs steadfast love, for you will render to every man according to his work. The thought of coming justice is comforting to David, and it should be to every believer. Those who relate to God through his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love, are thankful that he will bring justice to his enemies. No wrong will ever go unpunished. That's how the psalm ends. Psalm 62 has rightly been called a psalm of confidence. David, the author, finds himself in some difficult crisis awaiting salvation. The way I'd summarize the main point of Psalm 62 is like this. In every crisis, those in covenant relationship with God should quietly rely on God and on God alone until he fulfills every promise to rescue us from our enemies. In every crisis, In every season of difficult circumstance, those who are in covenant relationship with God should quietly rely on him, on him alone, until he fulfills every covenant promise he's made to save us, to rescue us from every enemy. Reliance on God is at the center of this psalm. And reliance on God, or we might say faith, or belief, is a massive theme in the Bible. It is a massive theme of eternal significance. Whether you believe God or not is a matter of eternal heaven or eternal hell. So it's right that so many people ask, what does it mean to have faith in God? How would I know if I'm relying on God? What does faith or trust actually look like? Great questions. In the rest of the message today, I want to use Psalm 62, this psalm of faith or of confidence, as our guide to learning more what it means to rely on God and God alone. I want to develop the theme in three ways. We're going to start most fundamentally. Most fundamentally, relying on God involves committing your whole life to him. Relying on God most fundamentally involves an entire life commitment to him. Let me start in the psalm, 
And then we're going to back out and consider the whole theme in, in Scripture. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 62 and verses 5 and 6, they're nearly identical. And with many terms, David describes what he means when he says, God, I'm relying on you. He says, God, you're my salvation, my rock, my fortress, my refuge, my glory. Think about those terms. He says, you're my salvation, meaning I'm looking to you for deliverance or rescue from my danger. He uses terms like you're my rock, you're my fortress, you're my refuge. Each of those terms is like an illustration. It's the place that you would run to for protection. If you're looking for protection from the sun or from a storm, you look for a crag. You look for a massive rock that you can hide under. If you're looking for protection from an army, you run into the fortress. He's saying, God, you're the one I run to for protection from danger. It's really interesting. In verse 6, he says, God, my glory rests on you. Get this. This is really critical for us. David is trusting God not only for rescue from danger and protection from enemies, he's also looking to God for his personal significance. For his eternal significance. So many times, we look for our glory from other people around us. What other people think of us, whether they think I'm great, matters. What people think of David right now doesn't matter. Whether people think highly of him right now doesn't matter. His glory rests in God. I care, God, what you think about me. My significance, my personal significance forever rests on God and what he sees me to be significant. And David's terms for reliance are many as well. So we've looked at what he means when he says, I'm relying on God. God's my salvation, my rock, my fortress, my refuge, my glory. But throughout the psalm, he uses different terms for reliance. He refers to it in verse 1, for example, as waiting silently. Or he refers to it, if you look down at verse 8, he talks about trusting in him. You can keep going. At the end of verse 10, he says, do not set your heart on anything else. Trusting involves setting your heart on. It's really interesting. I think it's really critical for us to take some time and really think, what does it mean to rely on God? If it could be described as setting your heart on, waiting silently, trusting in, what does this actually mean? Let me take just a minute to step back and look at this subject of faith or trust or reliance in all of the Bible. Faith is not, as it's so many times uh, confusing to people, faith is not blind. So many people say, you know what, you know something like that can never happen, like Santa Claus, but believe in it anyway because it's warm and heartwarming. That is not at all what faith is according to the Bible. Faith is not blind, it is informed. Many people refer to faith 
as being generally religious. You're a person of faith. That might mean that you have no religion whatsoever, except that you believe that people have a soul and you attend to your own spirituality. You're a person of faith. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about faith. Sometimes people will say, you're someone who just always believes that things are going to turn out well. I admire your faith. And what they mean is, you're just wired, or right now, you're, you're optimistic. You just always tend to look on the, on the bright side. For you, the cup's always half full. That's not what faith is according to the Bible. <laughs> according to the Bible, faith is focused on the explicit promises of God. The promises of God that center on Jesus. And faith isn't merely something you do in your head. It's not merely mental, like something you think. It is, to use these kinds of images, it's reliance. It's trust. It's setting your heart on something. Some people, I think rightly, often translate the word faith in the Bible as allegiance. That's good. In the Bible, faith refers to a personal conviction regarding God's promises, regarding God's trustworthiness, but it goes beyond trusting what God has spoken in his word to actually committing your life to him. It involves personal trust. You know what God has said, and you say, I am going to align my life with that. It's allegiance. Faith is a personal conviction that what God has said is true. And it results in you committing your life personally to God. Christians have taught throughout history, rightly so, that faith involves knowledge, assent or agreement with, and trust. In other words, you must know what the Bible says about your sin and about how Christ is the only Savior from your sin. You have to know the gospel before you can have faith in it. You then must go a second step. You must agree with the, the knowledge. You don't only know it, you agree with it. You say, yes, that's true. But if you only go that far, you're going as far as the devils. The demons know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. But they don't rely on him. They haven't submitted to him. They haven't called out to him. Is there a way to be saved? Is there a way that I can be rescued? It has to have knowledge and agreement and then personal reliance. And then faith has qualities about it. Faith has the qualities of being repentant and of producing love and of being enduring. Faith is repentant. We see this in the psalm. I'll point it out in just a bit. But you actually get this most clearly when you look at the contrast between, say, Luke and John. John is constantly saying, believe on the Lord Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus. And Luke is saying that the apostles go everywhere throughout the world preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke says in chapter 15 that the one person who repents is going to cause joy in heaven. You can use faith and repentance interchangeably because to 
trust Jesus is to say, I'm not going to trust this, I'm not going to trust this, I'm not going to trust this, and I'm not going to trust this. You don't add Jesus to the shelf of gods that you worship. You dethrone yourself. You say, I'm not going to trust in my own good works, and I'm not going to trust in this church or in that book. I'm going to trust in Jesus and what he's done for me. Faith is inherently repentant. Further, for faith to be alive... It has to demonstrate change in your life. James says that if you say, I have faith, and you have no works to prove it, he says your faith is dead. It's not alive. It's not saying that works earn salvation. It's just saying if you have the real thing, it's life-changing. And similarly, as our whole theme of the morning, faith is enduring. Saving faith is characterized by endurance. It's not that endurance saves you. It's that faith saves you. And if you've got the real deal, it's persevering faith. That's faith according to the Bible. And here in Psalm 62, David is relying on God. It is a decisive allegiance he's made in his life. He's relying on God. He's relying on God for his eternal need, that is to be reconciled to God. And he is relying on God in his everyday trials. Reliance is an allegiance Based on what God has said, you say, I am not going to trust anything else. Instead, I am going to rely on what God has said. I'm going to commit my life. I'm going to never look back. I'm going to follow and keep following and keep leaning hard. That's faith according to the scriptures. The second aspect of faith that I want to explore from Psalm 62 is this. Relying on God begins with knowing the covenant promises he's spoken. I'm really digging deeper down into what we believe. It begins with knowing the covenant promises he has spoken. Now here, I look not at the central, we might say, chorus of the psalm, but here I look at the bookends of Psalm 62. Psalm 62 is a psalm of confidence, but one scholar, Alec Motier, the late Irish Old Testament scholar, rightly referred to Psalm 62 as a psalm of contrasts. The most interesting contrast he points out is the difference between the first verse and the last verse. In Psalm 62, 1, the poet begins with silence. On God alone my soul waits in silence. Look at how the psalm ends. It ends with the poet, with David saying, God, I'm thinking about what you've spoken. I'm silent. You've spoken. Your words matter. He says, once God has spoken, twice I've heard it. That's a Hebrew way of basically saying, if God said anything, this is what he said. If I were to boil down everything God has spoken, it would basically boil down to this idea. And he says, I know that God is powerful, and I know that God is full of steadfast love. I'm silent. God has spoken. I'm chewing on his word. If he said anything to me, he said these two things. God is full of power and full of steadfast love. Hmm. Motier, the commentator I just quoted, says, the overwhelming impression of this psalm is reverential silence before an awesome God, a God of awesome power and awesome love. Absolutely right. 
reliance on God really begins with and is fueled by what God has said, what God has spoken. And David says in verses 11 and 12 that if you could boil down basically everything God has spoken, it would be this. To God belongs power and to God belongs steadfast love. Or under steadfast love, you might say, it's love that keeps its promises. Covenant-keeping love. And among other things, that means, last phrase of the psalm, God's most certainly going to bring justice on earth like he's promised. I'm going to come back to practical application, okay? But I want to dig deeper into this idea of what David knew God had spoken. What did David know from God's very words? Well, I want to just work through five things very quickly. What had God spoken to David? Well, from Genesis 1 through 11, David knew that God is the powerful creator who brought worldwide judgment through the flood. David, Psalm 19, the heavens are shouting the glory of God. Or David in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. David knew from the scriptures that God is the powerful creator as well as the judge of all creation. David says, if I know anything about God from the Bible, I know that power belongs to him. Power of creation, power of judgment. He knows this. Also from Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of Genesis, David knew that God had a plan to bring blessing to all peoples on earth through Abraham's offspring. David knew that the restoration of blessings to earth, the lifting of the curse of sin and death from this planet would come through Abraham's offspring. David, of course, knew more. He knew that it would come through Abraham's son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, and through Jacob's fourth son, Judah. Genesis 49.10 is where Jacob prophesies to his fourth son, Judah. Judah, it's your tribe who's going to hold the king's scepter until a descendant comes to whom all nations will submit. Whoa. David knew that God had a plan for bringing all the rebellious nations under the authority of his chosen king who had come from the tribe of Judah. David knew this. He sings about it in one of his most famous songs recorded in 1 Chronicles 16. The Lord remembers his covenant forever, David wrote. The covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. David rejoiced that God is a covenant-keeping God. From the prophet Samuel, when Samuel anointed him, David knew that God had chosen him to rule as king in Israel. Fourth, from the prophet Nathan, David knew that God would raise up one of his offspring who would rule forever. I'm reading 2 Samuel 7.16, where God says to David through Nathan, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, key to the Bible. Matthew 1.1 says... Jesus Christ is the son or the offspring of David, the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises for 
The one who's going to come and reign over all the nations. The one who's going to restore blessing to all the nations. The king from David's line who's long awaited is Jesus of Nazareth. Crucified for our sins. Risen to demonstrate that he can conquer death. He is risen. He is alive forevermore. He's ascended, enthroned in heaven. And from there, he is going to return. He is going to rapture his church. He is going to bring justice and peace on earth. David knew That the Lord had promised that the Messiah would come from his line and that the Messiah would, Psalm 2, break all nations, all the rebel nations with a rod of iron. David knew that was Jesus. These are the sorts of promises, the things that God had spoken that David is meditating on in silence. Number five, from the prophet Nathan, David knew that he had been forgiven of all of his treacherous sin. Many people suggest that Psalm 62 was written in the same circumstance as Psalm 63, which is very likely written when Absalom is seeking David's life. It's toward the end of his life when David's household is in turmoil and his son Absalom is trying to overthrow his father's reign, bringing an army out hunting his father, hunting for his life. I think that that's a fair reconstruction. And if that's the case then David has already gone through the worst failure, the worst valley of his life. In that moment, 2 Samuel 12, 13 says that the prophet Nathan assured David of his forgiveness. And after this, David wrote Psalms 51 and 32. Psalm 51 begins, O God, according to your steadfast love, blot out all my sins. According to God's steadfast love, forgive all my sins. Psalm 32, he then rejoices. How blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Psalm 32.10 says, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. See, David says, when you boil down everything you know about God's word, we know a couple things. God is full of power. Might belongs to him. And so does steadfast love. So when you read verse 1 of Psalm 62, let's go back. We're moving toward application. When you go to verse 1, and David says, I'm waiting in silence. This is not some psychological calming technique in which David is really exploring the inner recesses of his soul. Let me tell you, I'm not totally opposed to silence. I think in our modern American culture, we would be much more psychologically healthy people if we turned off our screens and turned off the noise that's often going in our car and going in our house and going in our offices. I think it's helpful for us To learn to be silent. But David is not describing some psychological technique for calming. David is being quiet so he can flood his mind with what God has spoken. So that he can rehearse what God has spoken. So he can boil down what God has spoken. And so that he can, at the end of the psalm, say, God, if I know anything from everything you've spoken, I know You've told me I'm forgiven. What love? 
God, if there's anything I know about you, you hold the power of creation. What power? God, if there's anything I know from what you've spoken, it's that one of my descendants is going to reign forever. And all of my hope needs to be centered on him. God, I'm going to hope in your power and in your love. You have the power to bring about everything you've promised by your love. It's these promises that David was contemplating in silence. It's these promises that were comforting him. So as far as application goes, I would say believers, especially you who are tried, you who are being tried as if by fire, use silence not as an ancient technique for therapy. Use silence to rehearse God's words You cannot rely on a God whose promises you don't know. Rehearse God's words. Listen to God's words. Let God speak to you in the silence. And use silence as a way of saying, God, your words, they're more important than anything I could say right now. I need your words. Use silence as an opportunity to remember God's words and to command your soul to rest in them. Now, just before I move on to the final point, I want to just consider a bit more deeply the last line of the psalm. From what God has spoken, David knows God's mighty in power and faithful in promise-keeping love. And he knows that God, in his love, because he is a promise-keeper, he will bring justice to every person. You see the connection. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will certainly render to a man according to his work. God is going to faithfully demonstrate his love to his children by bringing justice to every rebel. I think that's a fair summary of the last phrase. And I just want to say, is it sobering to you to realize from this very last statement that you and I either relate to God through his steadfast covenant-keeping love, that is, we relate to God through the forgiveness he offers in his chosen Messiah who was crucified and risen for our sins, the long-awaited descendant of David. We either relate to God through the covenant promises he's made in Jesus, or we will relate to God as a judge. The judge who knows every thought, who knows every motive, who knows every word, who has seen every action, that God before whom you are fully exposed will evaluate you, accuse you, and sentence you. You either relate to God on the terms of his love or of his strict justice. Either Jesus died for your sins in your place and bore God's wrath that you deserve, the punishment that you deserve, or you will face it, you will bear it. If you have never called out to Jesus to forgive you from your sin, if you have never called out to Jesus like, you're my only defense attorney in the courtroom, when the books are opened, And all of my thoughts and motives and words and deeds are listed. The only plea I'm going to have is that there's a defense attorney standing there, Jesus, who's going to stand up for me and say, Judge, I already paid for that person's sin. 
If you have not fled to Jesus as the only one you're relying on, I urge you to do so now. Call on Jesus. Take refuge in him. Rely on him as your only hope. The final movement of Psalm 62, the final exploration that uh, I want to do in terms of reliance on God is this. Relying on God involves continually refusing to trust anyone or anything else. It involves a continual refusal to trust anyone or anything else. The most remarkable feature of this psalm in terms of its literary artistry is that there is one term that's repeated six times at the beginning of six of the verses. Now, it's a little bit hard to see in English because to make sense of the way the Hebrew is written in an English translation, the ESV actually translates the same word three different ways, and the ESV doesn't include it as the first word in the verse. It's interesting. But if you look at verses 1 and 5, you see that Psalm 62, 1, for God alone To put it in English would be a bit awkward. Alone, God, my soul waits in silence on you. Something like that. You see it again in verse 5. God alone is the one on whom my soul must wait in silence. Verses 2, 4, and 6, it's translated as only. He only is my rock and my salvation. In verse 4, it refers to the enemies. Only, their only objective is to tear me down. And I already pointed it out in the reading, but in verse 9, the word but is the same word. Those of low estate are only a breath, merely a breath. And that word actually comes first in the verse, even though in an English translation it often makes sense to put the object at the end of the sentence. Only, only, alone, alone, only. You get the idea. In Psalm 62, why it's called a psalm of confidence is because David is thinking in stark terms. There's no gray area. He's not saying, God, right now, I'm kind of trusting in you. I'm kind of in the middle. You're one of my options. I'm sort of trusting you. (laughs) I trust a couple of things, and you're one of them. You're the biggest one, God. That's not David's thinking at all. It's, it's stark. David is stressing, God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you alone. I'm relying on you. I'm relying on nothing else. And as the psalm builds towards its conclusion, David considers two things he could be relying on. Verse 9, he says, I'm not trusting in any human, poor or rich. He says, I know that humans are lighter than a breath. That is, No human is guaranteed another year, another day, another breath. Anyone on whom you put your reliance could be gone momentarily. Humans are lighter than a breath. We are entirely dependent on God. And as David points out in verse 4, he knew that humans could be entirely fickle. One person in his cabinet could be his strongest ally one year and his biggest enemy the next year. 
They could speak with their mouth, I support you. And they could be treacherously hurtful behind his back. Humans cannot be trusted, David says. They're just light breaths. They're they're fickle. Don't trust humans. In verse 10, he lists another possible trust, source of trust. He says, I'm not trusting in money. Whether he got it illegally or honestly, David says, essentially, God, right now, I'm not strategizing on how to amass wealth so I can pay for a bigger military. I'm not figuring out how to pay my enemies off with bribes. David could amass wealth and say, maybe in wealth is the solution to all of my problems. I can get a bigger army. I can pay off my enemies. No. He knew the danger of relying on money. Interestingly, when he says there at the end of verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. I don't know if your Bible has it right next to it. If not, put in 1 Timothy 6.17. Because Paul is going to quote this, set not your heart on them, in his instruction to Timothy when he's saying, here's how you should teach the rich in the congregation, Timothy. He says, command the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God. That's good. Do not set your heart upon human help. Do not set your heart upon financial help. In the middle of crises, believers, we need to keep saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting them. God, I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting my money. You are my trust, not these things. In conclusion, I just want to make an important clarification. Some of you are sitting there saying, come on, can't friends and money be good gifts? I mean, if we're in debt and a friend comes to me and says, here's $2,000, is that friend's gift of money to help rescue you out of your debt a bad thing? Might God save us from our circumstance with a friend's gift of money? And you're saying, don't rely on friends, don't rely on money? What, what is this? Is God opposed to us receiving help? from other people. (laughs) No, not at all. God uses means, right? He uses channels. The problem here is one of trust. We often trust things that God uses to bail us out rather than God himself. If my friend has promised to help me, am I still trusting God? Or am I saying problem fixed? Do I know that my friend might not come through and I'm relying on God? Not simply the means that God might use. If the friend does help me, do I praise God as the one who's ultimately responsible for providing for me through that friend? God used my friend. Thank you, God. You get the idea. We as humans have this deep problem of trust. We think way too much of other people. 
and their help, and we think way too little of God and his help. How do I know? Well, because we often think of our employment in entitlement terms, right? Until we don't have a job anymore. We just assume that we're going to have a job. We assume that we're going to get paid. We assume this is just what God owes us. I've always had it. You know, I've had it for 10, 20 years. It's going to be there tomorrow. We're not trusting God day by day for the strength to work. We're not thanking God day by day for the job that he's given us, knowing that maybe because of circumstances completely out of our control, we will be disabled tomorrow. Right? We just go about our jobs thinking way too little of God and trusting God too little and just assuming that what we're relying on is always going to be there. Are you like me that you go into doctor's offices without prayer? You receive doctor's reports and you talk to a lot of other people about the report you just got before going to God? Aren't we just so prone to think way too much about what the doctor said? And we minimize the importance of God's sovereignty over this situation. Or, I don't know if any of you were like this, but you get your year-end reports. And you know what? The stock market's up a little bit, generally speaking, at the end of the year. And you look and you say, okay, I got the tax paper that I have to turn in. Did you stop to thank God? Did you stop to say, God, thank you? that these investments are up? Is that how you looked at your year-end statement saying, God, you gave me that money. Thank you for the privilege of being able to give it to you. God, this is all from you. See, I think we zero in on the means. And God is often an afterthought. And that's what David continually says. He says, God, my natural tendency is not to trust you and you alone. It's to look to humans for help. It's to look to money for help. But God, I am going to continually, repeatedly be throwing those off saying, God, thank you for the doctor you've given me, but my hope's not in a doctor, it's in you. God, thank you for the job you've given me, but my hope is not in my employer, it's in you. God, thank you for the friends you've given me, but my hope's not in my friends, it's in you. Do you continually say, God, my hope is in you? That's what this psalm of confidence is driving at. You say, how do I do that practically? Look no further than verse 8. We cultivate trust in God through prayer to God. Through, as verse 8 puts it, pouring out our hearts before him. And so my last exhortation is to Christians who are battered right now by circumstances. When is the last time you poured out your heart before God? When's the last time you said, God, here's what's going on around me. Here's what's going on inside of me. You're my refuge. Not my doctors, not my job, not my savings, not my friends. It's you, God. It's you alone. You see my situation. I'm pouring it out before you. When's the last time, Christian? If it's been a while, I'd urge you to address it as soon as you can. 
pour out your heart before God. And may this become a habit for you. Father, I ask that you would restore our confidence in you in the middle of the trying circumstances of life. Lord, I pray that you would awaken those whose hearts are dead to you, who've never responded to your word in faith. I pray that you would resurrect them, give them life, that they would trust Jesus today. God, for us who have committed our lives to Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen our faith through this psalm of confidence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.